Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Jesus is alive. Is that worth celebrating? Is anybody excited that Jesus is alive? The right side is still louder. All right, all right, all right. Evan joined the left side now. Um, I, I want, for some of you, you who don't know me, my name is Derek. My wife, Jerry, and I uh, planted this church eight years ago, uh, really out of this compulsion that everybody ought to experience the resurrected Jesus. And so I want to sort of introduce myself just a little bit to those of you who don't know me or my story. I, w- I grew up in a, in a household, we went to church every week. We were super faithful, we were Lutheran, but my parents still are Lutheran, um, and we went to the church every week. Every time the doors were open, we were there. I was in all the programs, I was in all the stuff. My, parent, my dad was the president of the congregation several times, uh, and if you know anything about that, my dad said, I'll never do it again. <laughs> um, but, but very faithful people. I was raised to going to church. My parents had me in the Lutheran tradition, baptized at three weeks old. And when I got to middle school, those of you who are familiar with it, I was confirmed. We did the whole confirmation thing. And what I did was I learned a lot about Jesus. I knew a lot about Jesus. I knew a lot about God. I knew a lot about the Bible. But when I got to high school, I began to discover that life would smack me in the face. And I had a hard time wrestling with this faith that I grew up with and the reality of the world around me. And there was a struggle where when I got to high school, I started to realize that I ought to cover up the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus or that I'm a Christian. I sort of should hide that as an identity and people shouldn't know that. I became a secret Christian. You know, if somebody really came and asked me, I'd say, well, yeah. But otherwise, you shouldn't know, because there might be a cost to me if you know. You might exclude me or treat me poorly. And so by the time I got to college, I I signed up for a philosophy class my first semester. I am not a philosophy guy, I learned. Um, But within three weeks, the professor convinced me that you couldn't know that God was real. And it's probably just a way people are trying to control your morality. So you should just reject that belief and instead embrace what you like. Do the things you want to do. And I was like, sounds great. I'll do that. And I lived for the next four years of my life trying to do whatever I wanted to make myself happy. And what ended up happening was I made a mess of my life. I made an absolute mess of my life. And I met this girl, and I was on my way to making a mess of that relationship as well, and she said I had to go to campus ministry if I wanted to see her on Friday nights. And my response was, well, how long is that going to take? And she said, it's about an hour and a half. You can come, you know. And so I showed up trying to be a jerk. I wanted to prove that these people were phonies, and they were all very kind to me. And over the course of about six months, I began to discover that this God that I had studied as a kid... He didn't die and disappear at some point in the past. He was still very much alive. And he was actually doing things in the world. 
I would worship and something would push back against me. It felt like goo, like gooey, right? Like if you could imagine like pressing into jello a little bit. Like, I mean, you guys had that dream, right? Like about diving into a pool of jello, right? No? Okay, well. Whew. Everybody's like, he's weird now. That's okay. That's okay. I've been called worse. Um, but it felt like as I would worship, I would put my hands up, and the more I would engage in worship, something would push back, and it was warm and gooey. And I began to discover that this was the God that I had studied. I knew a lot about God. I had never met him. And what I realized is the mess I had made of my life was out of control. And so in February 2003, I went on a retreat with these folks. And I got up before the sunrise and I walked to the top of the hill at a retreat center in southern Indiana. And I stood there and I said, Jesus, if you're real... Jesus, if you're real, you have to do something with my life. And the beautiful thing is, he is real. He is alive. And he grabbed a hold of my life. And I don't know how and I don't know why, but everything in that moment changed for me. My circumstances were still the same. The relationship that I was after was a disaster. And yet I walked back down the hill with tears streaming down my face, half frozen to my face. And I went into the dining hall, and it's like 7 in the morning. No college students were awake except for me. And I walked into the dining hall, and everybody's preparing the, the breakfast that everybody's going to come and eat. And I walked in, and I said, Jesus is real. And they're like, Yeah. How come nobody told me? How come nobody told me? How come, how come nobody, like, why did you just let me make a mess of my life? And the thing is, is people were telling me all along. But I hadn't encountered Jesus yet. You see, there's a thing that I want to propose to you today that I believe to be true. I believe that all of us want to live a life of purpose and a life of meaning completely sold out to something that we believe in. And yet that is balanced by this self-protective fear. I think we live in this space where we want to sell out to something that we believe in and yet to do so exposes us, does it not? If you've ever tried to believe in someone or something, there's a fear that I get out beyond the place where I'm comfortable and now I'm open to attack. Now I'm open, I'm vulnerable. And what if people discover that it's not real? And so I think faith in Jesus is this balance between I want to live a life of meaning and purpose and I'm also protecting myself. That's what I believe to be true about the world. That's what I believe to be true about faith in Jesus. And here's the story and what I want you to see and maybe even find yourself in. And the purpose of today is this. Friday night we talked about how Jesus died on our behalf. That there were 12 disciples who followed Jesus for three years. They didn't really have anything to lose. They weren't like, you know very wealthy people. They weren't picked up by any other rabbi. They were just following Jesus. And while they followed Jesus, 
They saw amazing things. They walked on water. They saw water turn to wine. They saw deaf ears opened and blind people would see. They saw dead people raised. Unbelievable things. And they thought, this is amazing. This is the kingdom. All right, I'm, I'm in on the ground floor. Jesus is going to show up and be king, and I get to be like vice president. I don't know what you'd call the second in command. Right? There's like a, a value of getting in on the ground floor until Jesus died. And when Jesus died, everybody got scared. They knew a lot about Jesus. They had watched him do a lot of things. And yet when he died, the reality that they might too die for this belief became real. And they felt vulnerable. And if you watch the story... These guys hide out there living for Jesus until he dies. And they're like, wait a minute, this is a little too real. There's a balance of wanting to sell your life out for everything and a fear of your life. And yet the scripture tells us within seven weeks, like less than a midpoint session for the, those of you guys that are midpoint, seven weeks, 50 days-ish. These guys went from self-protective, terrified, to out there pointing fingers at the ones who killed Jesus and said, you are the ones who killed Christ. And they were bold beyond belief. And the question I want to ask is, how do you go from being terrified locked in a room to being bold proclaimers of something that you know is going to get you killed? How does that change happen? And of course, many of you would say, well, it's Easter, Derek. I know the answer to that question. We're here on Easter, so it's obviously the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to say you're partially right, but you're not completely right. It's not just the resurrection of Jesus that does this. Let me bring it down just a little bit. We live in a city that for more than 150 years has been in existence. It was created to build the, the Horseshoe Curve. If you haven't been there, you should go there just to say you did. <laughs> it wasn't a joke, but it, it, I don't know. <laughs> but it was, that, that was the existence of the city. But everybody who came to build the curve brought their religious faith with them. You've noticed there's a church on every corner, right? There's a church, a bar, and a sheets on every corner. <laughs> right? We live in a city where the expression, the church of Jesus Christ, the expression of the resurrection of Jesus ought to have transformed the city, and yet it's full of overdose. It's full of schools that, that have kids that are bullied. It's full of suicide. And when you look around, you say, this doesn't look like the kingdom of God. Less and less so, right? I feel like every time I open the newspaper, I'm like, is this for real? And we start to go, if the resurrection by itself would change the city, shouldn't that have already happened? You see, it's not just the resurrection that changes everything. It is, but it's more than that. What is it then? What changes people? from terrified to emboldened. 
Look at Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. And it starts this way. It says, while they were still talking about this. What's the this they're still talking about? Before we read the whole thing, what's the this they're still talking about? You see, Jerry read at the beginning of of our time together that the ladies showed up to the tomb, the tomb that they left on Friday, that they knew where it was. It wasn't like they were like, well, which one was it? They knew where it was. They showed up to the tomb and they were like, The body's not here anymore. We're not sure what to do about that. And they went back and they told the disciples and Peter and John, they run out and sure enough, they didn't believe the ladies. I mean, there's probably a lesson in there. They didn't believe the ladies. They had to look for themselves and they discovered it turns out the women are right. That's for the men, by the way. (laughs) I mean, if you're married half the time, more than half, most of the time, your wife is all the time, your wife is right. <laughs> she just knows. It'll take you a while to come around, but she just knows. So they look and they find out that the tomb is empty. Yeah, you're right, it is. And we all come back and we're like, where did the body go? And the next section of story is these two guys walking to Emmaus. And they are met by this guy that somehow they don't recognize. And all of a sudden he starts talking about the way the scriptures played out and the way that this is what had to happen. And they sit down for a meal and all of a sudden they go, wait a minute, it's Jesus. Is it a figment of our imagination? I don't know. And they go back and they tell the disciples that are still locked in the room, they're saying, we think we saw Jesus. In fact, we, we know we did. And so they began to talk like, what is this? The tomb is empty. There seems to have been visions of Jesus. We're not sure what to do with that. And so they were still talking about this. But that didn't make them come out from hiding. You see, the fact of the resurrection wasn't enough to bring them out from the locked door. What was it? Verse 36 again. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, still, Because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. See, Jesus shows these guys that he's alive. 
What changes everything is that Jesus shows up. It's not just that he was raised from the dead, but he shows up in person. That there's actually a tangible experience with the resurrected Jesus. And if you look around at the room in that, in that day when Jesus showed up, these are not the people that you launch a worldwide movement with. These guys are terrified. They're not sure what to do. He shows up, they still doubt. These are not the guys that you would use to launch a worldwide movement, and yet something changes. Some have suggested that, well, it's, it was a, the resurrection was like a lie that the disciples made up. They just made this lie up, and, and that way, uh, you know, they could come out from hiding because he was raised, but they just sort of made it up. But I don't know about you. If you think about a room full of guys who are terrified, do you think they make up this lie that Jesus was raised from the dead? And even if it was a lie, how many people do you know who are willing to die for something that's not true? You know that's why torture works. Torture works because as soon as someone believes they're going to die for something that's not true, they'll fess up to save their own lives. That's why that works. And yet, these 12 guys lived the rest of their lives declaring this message that Jesus was raised from the dead. And all of them gave their lives for it, except for one. Some of you will know the name Chuck Colson. How many of you know that name? Familiar with the name Chuck Colson? He became somewhat famous uh, in Christian circles. But he was special counsel to Richard Nixon during the Watergate thing. So uh, Chuck Colson was kind of uh, Richard Nixon's hatchet man. He was a very ruthless guy, and he played a role in the Watergate scandal that ended up landing him in prison. And so as the whole Watergate scandal sort of like unfolded, somebody gave Chuck Colson a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. If you've never read it, you ought to. Um, he gave, they gave him this copy, and after reading it, he gave his life to Jesus. He pled guilty and went to jail, and uh, when he came out of jail, he became famous for prison ministry, and ended up, he, he died, I think it's 10 years ago. Um, but Chuck Colson was, was testifying to Jesus for the rest of his life. Here's what he said about the resur resurrection. Chuck Colson said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. What takes the disciples from being terrified people to being bold proclaimers of the resurrection of Jesus. It's not a lie. It's something else. And maybe more importantly today is what would take us from living this life of self-protection and of fear to claim the name of Jesus with our, with our friends and our community? What would take us from that space and move us into bold proclaimers of the kingdom of God, that the resurrection of Jesus as a fact? Is there anything in this story for us, what can take us from living a life without meaning and purpose to people who are sold out for something we can believe in? 
What can take us from being people who know about Jesus like I was to being someone who boldly proclaims and lives our lives for Jesus? What would make that transition? Is there anything in this story that will radically alter our lives? I want to suggest to you two things that changed the disciples and has the power to change your life and my life. Two things. The first is this. They had an actual experience of the risen Jesus. An actual experience of the risen Jesus. Look at verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The disciples spent three years following this guy. Watched him get killed. Even if his ideas were good ideas, he didn't survive. So I guess we just sort of lump them in the pile of good philosophical ideas. These guys didn't die for or give their lives and live their lives for another religious option. And even if there was a legendary tale that came out and said, well, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. We can't really prove it. We don't really know. Even if that did come out, it wouldn't help the philosophical idea. But these guys had encountered the risen Jesus. They didn't just hear a story about the risen Jesus. They didn't just believe it based on some ethereal idea. He was with them. They weren't peddling a different religious option. They didn't go around the world just sort of going, hey guys, I know you've heard about all these other religious things. Want to try Jesus? This is another good idea. You see, it's a very different thing when you're in a relationship with someone who has gone into death and out the other side. That's not a religious option. That's life. These people had encountered life. Listen, all the people that I know who are living interesting and impactful lives for Jesus, they don't do it based on some book that they studied or some, like, uh, you know, tradition that they held. Everyone that I know who lives an interesting and impactful life for Jesus does so out of an encounter with the risen Jesus. When I was standing on the top of the hill at that camp, what has propelled me to this moment is that I encountered the risen Jesus, and whatever else you can take from me, you can't take that from me. There's something about an encounter with the actual resurrected Jesus that nobody can take from you. And it changes everything about your life. We're not talking about a religion to join anymore. Like, when I invite you to come to Jesus in this space, I'm not saying, join a religion. I'm not saying, hey, this is a cool church, join the vineyard. All my friends are here. I'm inviting you to a relationship with a resurrected Savior. That's it. And that's a whole lot. But it's not about joining a religion. There's stories, I want to tell you this a little bit, maybe some of you will be familiar with this. How many of you are familiar with what Jesus is doing in the Muslim world right now? A couple people. Let me tell you some stories. There's these stories that are happening all around uh, the Muslim world that are coming out more and more, and there's, there's videos you can watch, there's books you can read of these stories where Jesus is getting a hold of Muslims and people, Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus all over the world. 
But not because somebody came and said, here's a Bible, let me teach you about Jesus. A lot of times, they're very supernatural. Let me tell you why that's important. If you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you say, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. It's not really a big change. That's not a big, like if you walk, if you went to work tomorrow and you said, hey, I gave my life to Jesus yesterday. It was pretty cool. You know, oh, what does that mean? Well, I mean, I go to church now. I got something to do on Sunday mornings now. It's not a big change. Nobody really sort of like disowns you in this world for following Jesus, or at least in America they don't. Generally speaking, some of you, maybe that's the case. But for many of us, it's not a huge change. But for Muslims, if a Muslim gives their life to Jesus, almost certainly it cuts them off from all their relational support. Their family will disown them. Their friends will disown them. If you want to do business in this community anymore, you can't. And that's like the best case scenario, is that you just lose a lot of relationships. For most of them, if they give their lives to Jesus, they have to hide and disappear because now there's a target on your head because you're an infidel. Now you're an outsider and we have to persecute you. So the cost for a Muslim to come to Jesus is significant. It's not something you just sort of like, ah, you know, I felt pretty, you know, there was, the music was great and I felt very, the environment was right and so I just said yes, right? This is not a Muslim conversion. And yet all around the Muslim world, people are giving their lives to Jesus. Let me tell you how and why. These are amazing experiences. All around the Muslim world, Jesus is showing up to Muslims in their dreams. Story on story on story of Muslim people who have had an encounter with the risen Jesus in their dreams. And because of encounter with the risen Jesus, they, they choose to follow Jesus. Now, this is a little bit of an oversimplification. You'd have to watch some of the videos uh, to, to get the, the whole story. But what would cause someone who is going to, at great cost to their life, choose to follow Jesus? It's not just the resurrection. It's an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. For many of us, that's significant. Many of us need to sort of be a little bit more open-handed with all of the implications of giving our lives to Jesus and be open to experiencing the resurrected Jesus. Because the only thing that's going to move us from this place of I go to church on Sunday and that's the thing I do, or I believe I'm a Christian because isn't the whole nation or something like that, the only thing that moves us from that to a bold faith is an encounter with the risen Jesus, and I believe that's available today. Now, I don't know where you are in your life right now. I don't know if you're like, hey, I'm a million miles from Jesus and somebody drug, drug me here, or I saw your pretty pink sign, and I decided I'd come in here. The date said April 17th, and today is April 17th, and so I showed up at the right time. I don't know where you are in your life, but one of the beautiful things is Jesus desires to reveal himself to you. That we don't have to sort of believe this in an ethereal way, but we actually can have an encounter with the risen Jesus. I mean, maybe it will be Jesus manifest in the flesh in the same way that he did to the disciples, or maybe it will be in a dream the way that he does to, to the Muslims, or maybe it will be just a real sense of his nearness or kindness from somebody in a way that you've never experienced. 
Whatever it is, Jesus may not give you what you want, but he will give you what you need. Look at verse 39. It says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because joy, of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. The disciples know very well dead people don't rise. Have you ever gone to a funeral and been a little bit concerned that the person might sit up? Some of you are like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> that is actually my fear, Derek. That's, that's why I don't like going to funerals. I'm afraid that might happen. The disciples knew that dead people don't rise. And there's no precedent for what happened on Resurrection Sunday. There's no precedent it's not like they're like, you know, every now and again, some dude just sort of rolls out of the grave and just does this thing. Right? That, there's no precedent for this. And Jesus knows that for the disciples, that might as well be the end. And so Jesus knows what the disciples need, and he actively shows up, and he says, take a look at my hands, take a look at my side, my feet, let me have something to eat. This is what a human does. And he demonstrates himself to the disciples. This is what they need. You know, the Gospel of John says Thomas was not with them the first time. So a week later, Thomas is around, and Jesus shows up again. I mean, imagine being the guys going, ah, oh, you did that once before. We, last week, we saw that. Yeah, I, I know. But Jesus shows up for Thomas because Thomas had said, I won't believe unless I put my finger in the holes in his hands and I put my hand in his side. And a lot, Thomas gets a bad rap, right? What do you know him as? Doubting Thomas. Do you know Jesus gave Thomas the same experience he just gave the rest of the disciples? He encouraged the rest of the disciples to touch, to watch me eat this food. He encouraged that. It wasn't like he was like, if you need this. He knew they needed it. And so for Thomas, he knew that he needed it. And for you, what do you need? He will give you. Jesus says there's a blessing for those who believe without seeing. But Jesus never shames someone who needs to see to believe. You can read the whole Gospels. Jesus never shames the one that needs to see. Some of us have lived our lives so much struggling to believe this idea that Jesus was raised from the dead. And what we've had is people go, just believe it on faith. Just check your brain at the door and believe it on faith. Do you know Jesus never says that? Jesus never says, let's pretend something that's not real. Jesus always welcomes and gives the experience that someone needs to see. There's never a place in, the, in Scripture where... where uh, experience of Jesus is set apart from faith in Jesus. Do you know that? That's something we make up. We make up this idea that somehow faith is to not experience Jesus. So faith is this thing that holy people have, experiences the less than holy thing, you know, you guys have to experience. Those two things are never set at odds in Scripture. In fact, if you read through Scripture over and over and over, experience is normative. In scripture. But here's the thing. The encounter Jesus gives is consistent with what scripture has said. Look at verse 44. 
he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Read there the Old Testament. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead, and on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus takes time to connect the dots for the disciples of the experience they had. He doesn't say there should be no experience. He says, this experience is consistent with what you read all through the Old Testament. And he connects the dots. So many of us are are afraid that faith could become experiential because we're afraid it would be sort of a choose your own adventure and make it up as you go along and anything goes and it could be whatever, whatever you want it to be. But that's not the case. Over and over and over, faith in Jesus is extremely experiential, but it's always connected and consistent with Scripture. Always. But here's where we get a little bit twisted, don't we? We, we get this idea that somehow i got to be able to quote it out of page, chapter, and verse. Right? Don't we have a little bit of a hard time like that? Like, I don't know, man. These people are sort of like waving flags. I'm not sure what to do with that. I don't see flags in the Bible. We have a hard time with experiential because we're like, well, I can't, if I can't quote it from Scripture, somehow it's invalid. Let me just tell you, the, the resurrection of Jesus was an unprecedented event. Jesus showing up in the room with the disciples was an unprecedented event. Jesus showing up in the dreams of Muslims so that they would come to faith is an unprecedented event. It's not that we find it and quote it out of Scripture. It's that it's consistent with everything that God has, has revealed himself to be. Experience is not opposed to faith in Jesus. Jesus takes all of the experiences uh, that the disciples have and roots them in Scripture. So it is life-altering to have this encounter with Jesus. I told you there were two things. Let me tell you what the other one is. Even Jesus says the disciples need something else. Really? Really? Like, that should be enough, right? Like, we saw a guy who was dead. He's alive now. Let's get going. Let's do the thing. We're excited now. This is great. This is amazing. We should go tell everybody because I've never seen this before. And Jesus says, hold on a minute. Wait. While it's a piece of the puzzle to encounter the risen Jesus, the other part of what turns the disciples from faithless to faithful, from misfits to missionaries, is the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The empowering of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 49. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. It may seem like an odd request, right? Jesus shows up, says, hey, touch. See, I'm eating fish. I'm, I'm good. See, I'm alive. And he says, but don't go anywhere yet. Don't go anywhere yet. Yeah, 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 we're going to talk about the resurrection all over the the known world, but don't go anywhere yet. I need you to wait. Imagine what that would, like, feel like, like the amount of excitement, like, and you're like, hey, contain this, like, for how long? How long I got to hang out here? I'm ready to go talk now. Shouldn't we have enough certainty to launch into ministry and, 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 you know, just do all the things? Let's go talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And yet Jesus says, don't go anywhere yet. Why? Because Jesus knows 
that excitement and conviction alone are not enough. Jesus knows that there are not enough to push the message of the resurrection to the ends of the earth. That just seeing the risen Jesus is important, but it's not enough. It's not an encounter of Jesus that just carries us on through. We've all, if you've been engaged in ministry for any amount of time, you recognize that excitement kind of wanes, right? We sort of do like this with excitement, right? Today, we're all really, really excited. Guess what happens tomorrow? Right? The energy crash happens, and then you're like, okay, all right, I got to get up for next week. All right, let's, right? It, people get baptized. That's like a high point, right? People walk away from faith and like struggle. That's a low point. Don't we know that sort of like this is the trajectory of our, of our excitement? It's not just an encounter with Jesus that carries people through. What they need is power. And Jesus says, the power comes from the Holy Spirit. What's the purpose of the power? Why do they need power? Why do they need to wait? Why does Jesus say, hang tight till you get the Holy Spirit? There's all kinds of thoughts, and I'm going to wrap up with this. Is it because we need power to understand Scripture? Is it because we need the Spirit's power to help us live a holy life? Is it because we need the Spirit's power to sort of witness and be bold? Is it because we need the Spirit's power to, uh, you know, approach situations wisely? Is it because we need the Spirit's power to, to heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead? And there's a lot of people who think any number of those things, and maybe more. But the biblical answer to those questions is yes. You see, there's not one part of this mission that you can just do in your own power. Just seeing the risen Jesus is, a, is, is the start. But the only way you get propelled into ministry is by the power. The disciples are sent out to proclaim that the rule and reign of God has begun in Jesus. That in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead has begun. And they say that the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, this is out of Romans, Paul says that the, spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And so you can't walk around the world saying, the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead and lives in me, and there not be some sort of demonstration of that power. I'm not saying everybody's an evangelist. But what I am saying is you've got to do the work of an evangelist, and that it's nothing you can do on your own. Apart from the power of the Spirit, you, you can try a lot of things. I can stand up here and dance, and you guys might get excited. My wife would laugh. But there's no power in the word preached if the Spirit of God's not in it. So there's no sense in trying this on our own. To proclaim this message demands a demonstration, which demands power. Paul says in Romans it's the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that lives in you. And if you've encountered the risen Jesus, the same invitation comes to you. That there's an invitation to you to encounter the risen Jesus and to be filled with the power of the spirit. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ.
with this. Be blessed, and we'll see you next time.